Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove. I'm your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and this evening we are going to be talking all about running RPGs in a city setting. Uh, So urban set RPGs, and these are not, you know, RPGs where your players happen to come upon a city. These are RPGs that are focused specifically on staying within an urban environment, pretty much for the duration. Uh, Now, this is not going to be, you know, me going through a whole bunch of good city RPGs, because uh, I'll be honest, there's a lot of them out there, and I haven't read as many of them as I would have liked to. Um main ones that people have uh you know recommended obviously there's several lankmar ones out there uh both pinnacle and uh you know uh tsr have put out uh fantastic lankmar settings uh dungeon crawl classics has a lankmar setting uh and i've heard good things about all of them obviously the original uh lankmar from uh you know tsr and the one from chaosium those are highly highly recommended by rpg historians uh you know i've heard you know several different people say great things about pretty much every lankmar book that's out there i even had like a post on one of the rpg forums on reddit where i was asking you know which lankmar is the best and it was really divided i guess it all comes down to uh you know, your, your preference of game system. But, you know, that stuff is out there for any of you who, like me, are, you know, Fofford and Grey Mouser fans. Uh, in fact, it, my cat Ronan even has a toy. It's a Grey Mouse, and I named it Grey Mouser after Grey Mouser. Had to explain that one to Elfie, and uh, still have not gotten her to uh, read the books, I don't think. I, I do have the audiobook for the first two collections of stories so maybe at some point i can i can get her to check that out hey von bolo what's up how you doing tonight welcome welcome so uh like i said what what i'm mostly going to be talking about here is what makes a good city what every city needs in an rpg uh you know i'm going to be taking a lot from matt colville i'm going to be taking a little bit from uh uh, Professor Dungeon Master as well. I'm actually going to be showing one of his documents here that he did a whole video on to discuss some of that. But what I'm going to start with is talking a little bit about um, how setting your RPG in a city affects 
the three pillars of role-playing, or role-playing games, rather. Uh, how it affects that balance, how you alter the pillars, um, how your character behavior will change or should change when your primary environment is a city, and also how certain character types will change in a city, uh, specifically focused on classes, and that's going to be very much from a D&D-centric perspective. Um, so we're, we're going to lead with that, and then I'm going to start looking at my map of Nighthaven, uh, comparing it with maps of Waterdeep and Baldur's Gate from D&D, uh, &D, and then also taking a look at uh, Professor Dungeon Master's uh, city generator with all the uh, districts that he has uh, you know, put together and how he recommends you build a city on the fly. Oh, what's up? Valor Studios in the house. Sweet. How you guys doing? This is fun. My, my producers don't end up uh, usually coming on here, so th this is great. I'm glad you guys are able to, to see me in my, uh, my environment here. This is fantastic. But yeah, Colville, um, he, he's done some great videos about cities and travel and stuff like that. And one of the main things uh, that we have to address when it comes to running RPGs in cities uh, that Colville has done a good job of talking about is you can't really gloss over uh, travel time when you have a city RPG. Now, I sound like a rank hypocrite saying this right now. Because if you watch Nighthaven, I am very much glossing over travel in a lot of cases. Uh, that's because Nighthaven is intended to be roughly two hours long each session, and I don't want to spend a majority of that time uh, doing random encounter tables. However, once Nighthaven is released as a product, there will be random encounter tables in there, and it'll be recommended that you, uh, you know, interact with those as often as possible. Because when it comes to, you know, a city, you're scaling down the environment in a lot of ways. In every way. You're scaling down the roleplay environment. So if you take a hex crawl where exploration is king, where exploration is the most important pillar of, uh, you know, role-playing games at that point. A city is a hex crawl in a microcosm in a lot of ways. And, and that's a great way to run a city-based RPG, especially one uh, that doesn't require a whole hell of a lot of planning. Now, with Nighthaven being something that I'm going to publish, there is a whole hell of a lot of planning in it. Uh, I've got clear story beats uh, built out for Shades of Grey, and those will all be there, but it's also going to be a matter of, you know, what random things do you encounter? How do those affect, uh, you know, the, the story beats moving forward? What order do you go after things in? That's going to be a big part of these, uh, you know, random encounters and, uh, you know, overland travel and stuff like that. But 
the the I guess we'll start with the exploration pillar since I already mentioned it. Um, exploration becomes huge in cities, and I think that's something a lot of people don't realize when it comes to running a city-based RPG. One of the ways to make it seem less like your party is just constantly running errands in a city RPG is to emphasize exploration. So you've got a huge map with all kinds of different districts, different things to find, different factions operating, all that stuff. So wandering around the city and, you know, finding things, you know, finding the guy on the docks who can fence any item no matter how hot, but there's going to be a price associated. That can be a whole session in and of itself with exploration, going down to those hexes, having to find that guy, and, you know, what happens when you cross each of those hexes. So, you know, that that adds a whole other element to your game when, when you introduce something like that and when you don't gloss over, okay, you go, go down to the docks. Because um, you might run into something interesting. You might, on a random encounter after, like, I don't know, every third hex that you travel, uh, you, know, you roll once on the random encounter table, you run across some brigands, you know, just some, uh, some ne'er-do-wells, a, a gang of ruffians. You fight them, maybe you leave one alive if you have a canny party pl- or canny player in your party, and they start asking questions about the fence. They're like, all right, where, where's, uh, where's Shady the Fence? Where does he operate out of? You know, have you ever... I know, I know you deal in stolen goods. You just tried to stick me up here. Um, where, where does he operate out of? And maybe the guy's a little resistant, a little, little hesitant to tell you, because, you know, if he blabs about where Shady the Fence operates out of, uh, he's likely going to get cut off from Shady services. Maybe Shady moves around a lot. You know, there, there's all kinds of elements you can throw in there, but having that element of something you encounter along the way can help you uh, accomplish your goal or make it a little bit harder to accomplish your goal that's just, you know, th- those are conflicts, complications, or ways to expedite the situation. Um, but it adds layers to your game. And, you know, th- it does make exploration a key part of uh, role-playing in a city. Uh, one great example of this that happened in one of the pretty much the only city-based game that I've been able to play in. Uh, when I first moved to Nashville, I got involved with a group who was playing in Waterdeep. They were running a very loose version of Dragon Heist in 5e. And exploration was huge in that game. Uh, it was a lot of, you know something is happening at this location. What are you going to do to... Uh, you know, get what you need from this. So, key example, there's this, uh, there were these, like, boxes, these uh, kind of like mother boxes from, from DC Comics that we needed to find because uh, every time one of them went off, just crazy stuff was happening in the city. Uh, like, places were getting blown up, uh, magic was going crazy, all kinds of just nonsense was happening with these boxes and there was a 
being wandering around looking for these things. So we found one, and it was underneath a high-end bakery in uh, one of the northern districts of Waterdeep. I've got the map here. Uh, I won't pull it up just yet, but it was up in the North Ward. Uh, there was this uh, this nice bakery that we had to sneak into. And what we ended up doing was uh, my character, uh, this was actually Kieran Devitt, who you'll recognize from Nighthaven. Uh, he was able, he, he disguised himself as like a staff member and he was able to sneak in and, uh, you know, find his way underneath the bakery. And we had a couple other players who went in uh, disguised as like a, uh, a wealthy couple to distract everyone so that Kieran and everyone else could sneak underneath the bakery because the only entrance was right there near the bakery and we didn't want people to know that we were going underground. Because as soon as someone who's not supposed to be underground starts going underground in a city, people are going to realize, hey, there's, you know, some shady shit going on over here. So that became a huge part of the game, and we we had to sneak into multiple places. We had to case places. Uh, we had a whole heist session based around a giant party at the house of a, uh, a noble family that one of the players had a huge vendetta against. It was fantastic, and exploration was a big part of it. So exploration isn't de-emphasized, but it's different. It's a lot of, you know, turning down dark alleys, uh, you know, doing what Daredevil does in the Frank Miller Daredevil comics, where you, you go into Josie's bar and you throw people through the plate glass window until you find Turk and get him to start talking. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, read Frank Miller's Daredevil. You won't regret it. Especially if you don't know anything about Daredevil, that's your that's your entry point there. So, that aside, uh, that's exploration, and that's what exploration looks like in a city RPG. Is you you have to go around uh, and and find people, find places, uh, and and knock heads, pay bribes, whatever it takes to find uh, you know what moves you towards your goal. And that dovetails nicely into roleplay, because one of the, actually the most important pillar of uh, RPGs in a city-based game is roleplay. There's going to be a lot of interacting with NPCs, with characters, with characters' backstories, um, and a lot of things that would normally be solved with a sword in just your regular standard RPG session could maybe be solved by sticking some coins in the right hands or convincing someone to do something or, you know, on down the line. Because in cities, especially medieval cities, this is something that Professor Dungeon Master outlined super well in uh, his city video. In cities of the medieval period, everyone was expected to be in certain places. Uh, you had to have some kind of indicator on you of what your profession was. You 
could not dress outside of your station. There were all kinds of weird laws that were basically designed to keep people in places they should be, because if you weren't in a place that you should be, chances are you're going to cause trouble. So roleplay in these cities will involve, in a lot of cases, getting people to look the other way, uh, getting people to give you access to places you might otherwise not have access to, or exploiting your background or your connections to uh, get access to those places that you need access to. And what this leads to is something that's been a staple of every single one of my games, without a single exception. Every single game that I've run has had factions in it. It was not initially on purpose. It's now become a thing that I just do because I, I like coming up with factions. It is my, uh, the it's the wrestling fan in me coming out. The wrestling and, and comic book fan because, you know, in, in both wrestling and comics, you have colorful collections of uh, miscreants, thugs, leaders, all kinds of, you know, gangs, essentially. In wrestling, obviously, you've got, like, the Bullet Club, the NWO, uh, DX, you know, all those different factions. In comics, you've got the Magia, uh, you've got S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, to use some DC Comics examples, you have the uh, Maroni crime family, you have the Falcone crime family, uh, you've got... Like the the false face society, I think that's what Black Masks Gang is called. Uh, the League of Assassins, all those different things. So I love factions. I I just love factions. Factions are cool, and in cities you need to have them. So not only in cities will you have, uh, you know, your uh, Merchants Guild and your Artisans Guild and things like that. You'll have the city guards. Um, you'll also have temples, uh, you know, religious organizations. You'll have the nobility, governing bodies, uh, thieves guilds, to, to call on Fritz Lieber a little bit there. Uh, you'll probably have some kind of association of prostitutes, if that's a thing you want to mess with in your game. Uh, so there's there's going to be some kind of uh, legion of ladies of the night, uh, which you'll notice has uh, become an element in Nighthaven. And that's not going anywhere. That's uh, Those characters are going to be around, just so everyone knows. But you have this interplay between factions and your uh, connections to them, your ties to them, your influence within them is going to be crucial to helping you get in good and, uh, you know, find various other ways about uh, or ways to get what you want, access to certain areas, access to certain people. And... Roleplay gives you the opportunity to exploit those things and, you know, find your way around. It's, you know, roleplay is, is really key. It's, it's important to have a face character if you're running a, a city game. Or to have every character have some contribution towards uh, 
role play because it, with role play being so heavily emphasized players who like to focus a lot on martial uh classes will tend to kind of turn up their nose at role play a little bit uh, i don't think that's fair because i do think combat is very important in city-based rpgs we'll get to that in just a second but I, that, that's why I think there should be some element where a martial character can improve uh, you know, certain situations when it comes to role play. So the example that I like to use is you've got the rogue or the bard trying to intimidate someone, trying to shake someone down. And maybe they're more of a persuasion character they're they're a lover not a fighter well if the person can't be persuaded you have to change tactics move on to intimidation uh, and you've got a big old barbarian with you i think a barbarian ought to be able to either make some kind of strength check to like you know pick up a barrel and crush it in their hands or uh you know make some kind of check that will grant advantage to the person making the intimidation check or even just you know stand there looking mean if the player comes up with this idea on their own they're like i want to assist in this and what i'm gonna do is uh you know have uh bork squirrel smasher come up behind the rogue and just you know cross his arms in that super manly way and like flex his pecs and really uh, you know, pop the lats and everything, just, you know, tense up and show all the muscles while he stands there just, you know, mean mugging, just, you know, I probably look stupid. But, you know, do do something like that. For anyone listening on audio, you're very confused. I tried my best to do the intimidating, uh, heavy look there, and I'm pretty sure... I looked like a total moron, but I'm looking forward so that it doesn't look like I'm looking to the side, because uh, the... Let's not get too inside baseball with my production set up there. Anyway, I think that's important, and I think uh, martial characters should actively participate in uh, roleplay situations, because, uh, you know, my at my table, I'll reward something like that. I'll allow something like that to happen. And a good example of this, to go back to that Waterdeep game, we had a fighter uh, named Winslow. Winslow was not the sharpest tool in the shed. uh, And he was not very charismatic either. But Winslow knew a guy. Uh, The the player who played Winslow was very, very good at using the I know a guy rule. So Winslow had, you know, been around the Waterdeep underworld and he had amassed connections there. And for anyone who doesn't know the I know a guy rule, it's it started on the internet like most things these days. But it's basically at any point in time, players can say, I know a guy who can fill in the blank can help us solve this problem, can you know get us these false papers so that we can get into uh, the merchant's hall uh, 
um, to, you know, find the guy that we're looking for. He can help us forge these documents. And however helpful or, you know, vital the service is, um, like, say, the objective is we need to get out of the city immediately. And the player goes, I know a guy who can get us out of the city. Obviously, that would completely fulfill the objective. So the the more helpful the guy that you know, the more difficult it will be to find that person, get them to help, you know, whatever. So it gives a solution where otherwise there wouldn't be a solution, but it also adds complications in that you now have to fulfill whatever requirements it is that that person needs to get them to help you. And if it's as, uh, you know, innocuous as uh, we need to sneak into this uh, particular function at the castle, and one of the players goes, I know a guy who can get us guards armor. That won't get you, or that won't necessarily... Uh, automatically get you into the castle, but it can go a long way to helping. So the price there would be a lot lower than someone saying, oh, I know a guy who can get us into the castle. I know a guy who can just open the gates for us. As a dungeon master, I would put kind of a lesser price on the guard armor. It would be something like, you know, I need a certain amount of gold pieces or I need you to go run this errand for me. Whereas the person who will let you into the castle might have a little bit more uh, that they're asking for. Like once you're in, I need you to assassinate this person or I need you to steal something from the Lord or I need you to do something hard or maybe even something that could potentially be counter to your uh your objective and that's all part of you know good role play and winslow was a fighter but his player was canny enough to utilize these particular connections and uh you know utilize that aspect of the game and the the game master randy was super cool about uh you know making that work and and making those kinds of things fun and enjoyable and and part of the game experience so that's role play it's a lot of who do you know or who can you talk to who can you coerce into doing your bidding and that's going to get you a long way in these city-based rpgs and i think uh you know my, I think my Nighthaven players are going to end up finding this out, uh, not the hard way, but they'll definitely find this out as they move forward. Uh, connections are going to help them a lot, and if they make those connections, or if they can produce those connections from their imaginations, uh, it'll be all the better for them in the long run. And then the last pillar here is combat. Now, combat is interesting because... Combat will produce a lot of complications in a densely populated area. When you're out in the wilderness adventuring, uh, killing someone with a fireball is gonna, or it's likely to not go as noticed as it would be in a city. So if your wizard's fireball happy, and they're just, you know, 
throwing out fireballs left and right. At some point, things are gonna go south for them. It's gonna get pear-shaped real quick. Uh, another good example of this was that Waterdeep game. Now, this wasn't anything we were doing necessarily, but people started to put together that our party was usually in the vicinity of these explosions that were caused by these boxes. And there were a lot of people turning up dead. And there were a lot of bodies being found where we were. Because we, you know, we'd go to these locations and there'd be mainses there. And for anyone who doesn't know what a mains is, uh, look it up. It's a giant flesh monster demon. It's gross. But we fought a lot of them. So... You know, people would be finding these giant, bloated, sewn-together demon corpses. And, you know, people were able to place us there at, at the scene of the crime. And, and things got hairy there for us. My character was a bounty hunter, so, you know, being around uh, trouble, I, I, I could justify kind of, you know, being around uh, trouble spots. I could be like, well, I'm looking for the person who did this. I was Kieran, so it was an Irish accent. I'm looking for the person who did this. I'm going to bring him in. I want the bounty. That's what Kieran would do. But, Kieran aside, even after a while, it was like, okay, you know, you haven't brought anyone in yet. So, it, it became a bit of an issue for us, let me say. So, that that's the thing about combat, is in a populated area... People are going to notice. People are going to notice you having sword fights. And uh, even certain weapons and armor. That's one thing that was interesting about Professor Dungeon Master's video. Uh, in the Middle Ages, in medieval cities, you weren't allowed to wear armor in the cities because if you just let people wearing armor into the city gates, then invaders could just kind of come through one at a time. And then, you know, meet in the city and take over the city from the inside. So it was generally expected that if you were wearing armor, you'd be asked to remove it before entering the city. And the only time you could wear armor in the city is if it were under siege. Because at that point, you know, if you're in a city and it falls under siege, if you have, you know, armor and weapons, which most people, actually all men were required to keep arms in their homes because it was expected that when the city's under attack you are to defend it because you've sworn your allegiance to the lord of the city or the city council or whatever and and you now because of that allegiance have to participate in the defense of the city in fact a lot of all lords uh in in the medieval period it's part of the martial ethic of uh chivalry you're required as a lord to like keep a stock of weapons so that the people who worked for you could take up arms if they needed to if the king called upon you or if your town was under attack you had to be able to arm yourself and uh you know defend the city so having weapons is fine also you know for self defense and everything but, you know, carrying around pole arms 
and, you know, huge axes and wearing full plate armor, that's not necessarily cool in the city. And and one of the things uh, my players haven't encountered this yet because uh, they've mostly been moving around at night. And I've kind of glossed over, you know, traveling. But in the daytime, if they're, if they're going to walk around Nighthaven just in the middle of the, the day, uh, if Arya is walking around wearing his armor, uh, people are going to notice and the city guard are going to be like, hey, what are you doing here? Now, there is a special exemption uh, for the shield maidens of Kador in Nighthaven because their armor is a religious garb. So they have certain license to, you know, wear what others wouldn't necessarily wear. And if he's able to pick up on that, if he, you know, if that's going to be a big thing that will be revealed in the, in the next episode. Um, it's not a major spoiler. It's, you know, it's a minor thing. It's a convenience thing more than anything else. But, you know, he's religious, they're religious. So if he's able... If he's able to convince the guards that it's a religious garb, then, uh, you know, he'll be in the clear. Other than that, you'd have to hide that you're wearing armor. And that's why Nightsteel is such a big deal in Nighthaven, something we'll get to in uh, in Shades of Grey at some point. Uh, they'll discover some Nightsteel. Because I designed Nightsteel to be a suit of plate armor that you can conceal because it's lightweight. It's basically, uh, it, it would basically be like Kevlar, like Kevlar armor, but it's actually steel. And it, it would offer the same protection as uh, full plate. So you could wear it, but you could also wear like a cloak over top of it and, uh, you know, trousers and probably a jerkin so that you could hide the fact that you're wearing armor. Would it be super comfortable? Probably not, but it would allow you to hide your armor a little bit more without looking ridiculous and giving away the fact that you're hiding armor. So that all contributes to combat, and what that means is combat becomes a lot more harrowing and has a lot more lasting consequences. Uh, In that case, your players might have to avoid combat or might have to take combat to different places. Um, big element of that will be underground. I like to have catacombs in my cities. Nighthaven is mostly catacombs. So there's going to be a lot of underground places where, you know, kind of normal adventuring stuff can happen. But, you know, the ramifications of having a knockdown drag out combat uh, will be gigantic and may cause some issues for the party. And a corollary to that is the whole issue of magic. Because again, as Professor Dungeon Master points out in his video, if there's magic, if you know magic is abundant, uh, people, you know, people are going to be aware that your average mage can throw around firebolts and can, uh, you know, manipulate matter so that they can make a copper coin look and feel like a gold coin for a certain amount of time. There's all kinds of different ways that you can cause mischief with super low-level, not very costly magic in fantasy settings. So 
being able to uh, regulate that magic is, uh, you know, of paramount importance. So in a city that's not going to be super familiar with magic, their reaction is probably going to be to burn magic users at the stake or execute them in some manner. Uh, there's probably going to be a lot of hostility towards magic users if magic is not super common. If magic is common, then there's probably going to be a regulatory body, like in Nighthaven, the Tower of Zalev and the Night Society. Which the Night Society, uh, the players have not encountered yet, but they will. And the Tower of Zalev is the main magical college. So basically, to use magic, you would have to register with one of these entities uh, to be a licensed mage, and there would be certain restrictions on what you can and can't do in the city, like set things on fire, or cheat people at the market, or control people's minds, or things like that. And if you're caught doing it, you're going to get in serious trouble. So... You know, you're in a fight, and your wizard's throwing out fireballs left and right, willy-nilly. Uh, not only is there going to be massive property damage, which is going to cause you problems, but there's also now going to be whatever response to magic, uh, you know, comes down. And whether it's some kind of elite guard unit or some kind of special magic police, uh, there's going to be consequences for doing certain things in combat. And that's something, there's probably, if not a stream, there's probably a 15 to 20 minute video from someone like a Matt Colville or a Professor Dungeon Master about how combat in RPGs shouldn't take place in uh, the, the JRPG pocket dimension of combat. We've all seen this, where in video games, uh, you know, especially turn-based RPGs, combat will happen off in this, like, disconnected reality, where uh, the, the environment around you doesn't really matter. Uh, and, and a lot of people treat RPGs that way, like tabletop RPGs that way, and... You really shouldn't, especially in a more densely populated area. And I've done this before, too, because it's easier. It's easier to just say, all right, combat's happening, this is isolated, and, you know, nothing happens. But in a city, you're going to have situations where someone could see you. And so what you might do there is... Uh, here, let me, let me grab a dice. Let me grab a dice. D6, right here at the top. And probably the best dice for this. Uh, combat starts, and the Dungeon Master rolls a D6. I rolled a 1. So what that would mean here is in one round, someone is going to notice what's going on, stumble upon everything that's happening, and however they react is however they react. Whether they join in on your side, join in on someone else's side, uh, or go get the authorities... Uh, something's going down in one round. Someone's going to notice what's going on. Uh, one is a very catastrophic result for the players. Six is probably rendering this whole thing a moot point for the dungeon master. 
So ideally, you're looking for somewhere between three or two to four. Two to four is probably your best range. So roll again. That's a five. That's a bit much, but if it's a big combat, then you might still get something out of that. So that's a cool little mechanic for if there's combat popping off in an urban environment, uh, you roll a d6, and that's how many rounds the players have to finish this up before someone stumbles upon them. So there's that. And it may be one of those things where, uh, like in like in street gang movies, you know, everyone's brawling, they're, they're having their rumble, and the city guards show up, and someone goes, it's the cops, everyone run! And everyone goes their own directions. That might be interesting. That might be interesting to see. I wonder if players would, would instinctively come to that. Yeah. I like that. I, I just came up with that on the spot. Someone in the YouTube comments is going to tell me that, you know, some other uh, more popular and more intelligent personality came up with something similar to that or that's common sense or, you know, what have you. But, you know, that just occurred to me that that could happen. So whether that makes me a genius or a moron, I will leave up to you. Uh, but I like that idea. And whether or not it's wholly original, you can still... I think file that away as a good mechanic. So that's how the pillars of play are affected with, uh, you know, setting your RPG in a city. Let's talk a little bit about characters and how they're affected. I've already talked about magic users as a whole a little bit, but that's going to be a big deal for your magic users. Um, you know, wizards are likely the let me rephrase that as a wizard you are likely affiliated with a school of magic or whatever the magical authority is you you studied to get your magic so you likely have some kind of connection to the magical authority so if you know you're running a game in nighthaven and one of your players is a wizard they probably studied at the tower of zalev or some other accredited magic school somewhere else in Dareholm. And as such, their uh, certificate uh, identifying them as a wizard would be valid in Nighthaven. And they'd be under the protection of the Tower of Zalev and the Night Society, but they would also be subject to its bylaws and all that that entails. That's for a wizard. A cleric will be affiliated with a religion. So, you know, they're covered by whatever rules govern religions and, you know, they probably have a little bit more latitude than the wizards do, but not so much that they can get away with killing someone. Um, and, you know, they're a cleric, so, you know, you probably shouldn't be killing anyone anyway. Now, what you can do with clerics is if they worship a god that's not recognized within the city or there's some kind of, uh, you know, sectarian... Uh, struggle going on between their religion and the religion of the city there's tension there and where there's tension where there's conflict there's ample opportunity for role play so you've got that now with sorcerers and warlocks you've got a little bit of a conundrum there because sorcerers are naturally gifted Warlocks made a pact with some outside entity. 
So my recommendation would be that you kind of list all of these, uh, you know, sorcerers and warlocks, these wild magicians. I know, you know, being a wild magic user is a sorcerer thing. But those guys are uh, rogue magic users. Uh, they are unregistered. They, they aren't affiliated with any organization. They are kind of seen as uh, a threat to the church or the uh, you know magic school or whatever. So having a player who is a magic user but isn't a wizard or a cleric, it might behoove them to pretend to be a wizard or a cleric and to have some kind of forged documents or something like that. And if they can't prove that they are uh, you know affiliated with one of those organizations, it might be trouble. Or they might be trying to hide their magic entirely. And, you know, any other, you know, half-casters, like bards. Bards obviously would not... uh, They'd be affiliated with a bard college, and maybe that has a magical element to it. But they wouldn't necessarily be affiliated with a wizard's school. And the wizard school might have the monopoly on magic. So, you know, if that comes into play, that could be, uh, again, another source of tension and therefore a source of good roleplay. Um, and it's the same with, uh, you know, Eldritch Knights and everything. They might be part of an order or they might be, uh, rogue magic users. So that's going to change the way that players have to operate. Um, they're going to have to either hide their magic or submit to some kind of magical authority. And, uh... What they choose to do will depend on the player, and it will create multiple different situations for the party. Uh, Martial characters remain largely intact. Rogues especially will thrive in an urban environment. Fighters, the armor issue might be an issue. Um, But you you might have to work around that. You might have to be a more dexterous fighter and rely more heavily on using uh, like leather armor or studded leather armor, not necessarily uh, wearing full plate. Or you might just have to hide your full plate. So, you know, there, there could be some issues or things to work around there for a fighter or a paladin. Although a paladin... Paladins I'd lump in with clerics as being, you know, that you can make a sectarian argument for their uh, their armor. You know, I'm a paladin. It's this is the uh, this is the garb of office. I have to wear this. It it shows who I am. It's it's an indicator of rank, an indicator of my status as a religious man. So, you know, that would maybe explain away the paladin and the cleric wearing full plate armor. Uh, the ranger. The ranger is an interesting case here because rangers rely very heavily on uh, natural exploration and things like that. A lot of people may see a ranger as useless in a urban campaign. And I would encourage you to think outside the box when it comes to incorporating rangers into urban campaigns. 
I say this is the guy who played Kieran Devitt, who is a Gloomstalker ranger. Um, but it's not that difficult to turn a ranger into a bounty hunter. To turn a ranger into, you know, a, a thief taker. A thief catcher, whatever uh, you know terminology you prefer there. All it takes is just a couple of flavor tweaks here or there. And uh, Tasha's Cauldron can really help with this because you can really urbanize the ranger in a lot of cool ways and make it so that, you know, moving through city streets uh, can be treated like a favorite terrain or, you know, moving through tunnels underneath a city. Like I said, the Gloomstalker. Gloomstalker basically turns a ranger into Batman. So, you know, that's a good option for an urban ranger, especially at nighttime. That's that's a really good option there. Another big one is the druid. Uh, druids are even more difficult than rangers because druids, um, again, just rely so heavily on natural environments. And if you're playing a druid who grew up in the city, uh, you might be in for kind of a weird time. However, I've seen a great example of someone playing an urban druid, and this is where I get to tell kind of a cool story about who I've gamed with in the past. See, in the uh, the group I gamed with here in Nashville, um, I got to game with a uh, somewhat famous actor. He's been on a couple big shows, uh, most notably the show Nashville. And uh, so Sam Palladino is the actor's name. I, I, I got to game with him for one session. And it was in the Waterdeep game. And the character he showed up with was a druid. Uh, however, his druid was this kind of like weird sewer dweller. He was like Mole Man or Rat Catcher. Um, he basically like turned into giant rats and stuff like that. He was kind of uh, kind of gross. And he had kind of urbanized the idea of the druid. So one cool thing you could do is kind of go that route. And what I like about this is it really turns the druid on its head. A lot of people think of the druid as like the hippie class. You know, you're, you're a tree hugger if you play a druid. Uh, you know, you care about natural stuff and all that. And in a city, in a concrete jungle, uh, a lot of the nature that finds its way into the city is kind of gross. You're talking about things like rats, cockroaches, bats. Uh, as far as plant life, you're talking about fungus. Maybe some, like, trees and grass here or there, but, you know, you're mostly dealing with kind of gross creatures. Which will limit what your character may be exposed to, because you have to have seen an animal to be able to turn into it. If your character's lived in the city for its whole life, or for their whole life, they might not have seen some of the, you know, bigger game out there. Maybe they traveled outside a little bit, but for the most part, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with stuff that's native to city environments. And what that will turn your druid into is something kind of gross and weird. And honestly, I'm here for it. I wish that Sam had played with us a little bit more because uh, it was a ton of fun. He, he had a really great character and I would have liked to see him do a little bit more. But 
you know, it it was a cool character. This is great fun. It's great fun to to see someone think that far outside the box with a druid. And obviously you can be like a traditional druid who wandered into town and, you know, is is dealing with kind of, you know, being an outsider in this uh, urban environment and how they cope with the loss of their natural environment. But if you really want to do something cool, something kind of grimy and weird, um, City Druid is an interesting way to go with it. Turn yourself into, like, rat catcher or, or something like that one interesting idea and this is uh playing off of a character that i only got to play for a little bit in uh, that same group that was playing water deep and that i was running dark sun for i played the uh path of the beast barbarian and i basically turned him into what i called a combination of killer croc and Khal drogo so having something like that, where you're just this bestial creature who like runs around the sewers and stuff like that, that's an interesting character idea. That's that's something that kind of, you know, turns things on its head a little bit. I know that's not a druid, that's a barbarian, but still, you know, something like that would be interesting. I might throw that into Nighthaven. I might have that character exist in the world of Nighthaven, not the specific character that I played, but something similar. Just like a, a beast man running around the sewers. Because I think that's interesting. Is it derivative of Killer Croc? Absolutely. But this is... We're in RPG territory here. We file the serial numbers off of things and turn them into something legally distinct and call it our own and, you know, high-five each other when we pull it off. So, you know, it's all good. I'll cite my source. As Razorfist likes to say, the difference between uh, ripping something off and paying homage to it is citation. So, you know, or plagiarism and homage is citation. So I will say I am inspired by Killer Croc in doing something like that. So there, I should be in the clear. As long as I don't make it too obvious. Now... As far as other character types go, I think those are really the only ones that are majorly affected by setting your campaign in a city. Your druids, your rangers, uh, your fighters to an extent, and uh, your magic users. Magic users will need some kind of affiliation, some kind of guild, something that justifies their magic and you know regulates it. Uh, fighters are going to be need to be careful about the armor they're wearing and the weapons they're carrying and when they're brandishing them. Rangers will need to have an urban tilt to them. And uh, druids are going to have a, a unique time. Excuse me. Fitting into cities. So. With that in mind... Uh, let's move on a little bit and talk about building cities for RPGs. And we're going to take a look at Nighthaven. We're going to take a look at Waterdeep and Baldur's Gate and see kind of how things line up there. So let's move on over to screen share and take a look. Alrighty. So... 
This is a PDF for an instant city generator uh, that Professor Dungeon Master talked about uh, in 2020 in his city video. Uh, this PDF is available to patrons, so if you want an added value to PDM's uh, Patreon, you get this document um, as you know for for being a patron. And he showed this on his stream, or not his stream, his video. So. I'm, I'm pretty sure that makes it okay for me to show it. He showed it too. I won't distribute the download link or anything like that. But, you know, this is... This is the city generator they talked about. And he intended this to be... Um, you know, it, you only have a couple hours before your players are showing up. They're going to be exploring a city. So, you've got your... Uh, let's see, three, six, nine... You've got your 12 squares here. Uh, that are going to, you know, be filled by the, all these districts. And you have a D12 table that will... Uh, sorry. A D12 table that will help you fill out the map. And what we've got here, I'll start... I'll actually start at the top. So, uh, you know, he explains some of the things that are key to medieval cities in medieval role-playing games. So cities grow at crossroads or on coastlines, and they're always built near rivers. Uh, this is important because of trade. So any, any trade goods will have to be sent somewhere. Easiest way to do that is by water. If the kingdom is wealthy, the road to the city will be paved. So there's going to be roads coming in and out of every major city, if it's in a wealthy kingdom, these roads are going to be super nice. And then inland cities will have a predominant culture or ethnicity, and they'll, they'd be more mindful of outsiders. So if you're not near a coastline, if you don't have that constant trade coming in, if it's a crossroad city, um, there's going to be a predominant, like he says, culture or ethnicity. So... You know, your elven city is going to be a little bit more insulated when it comes to, or insular, when it comes to dwarves coming through or humans coming through. A halfling city is likely going to be very different and, and very particular to the halfling way of life. Uh, if you want to think of, like, the Shire as a halfling city, uh, you, you can think about how different that culture is from what you typically see in... Uh, you know, the cities of man. Even if you just want to uh, contrast Bree with... Bree is a small town. Contrast that with the Shire. There's, there's a big night and day difference there. Uh, so port cities are going to have a wider variety of races and cultures because of the constant in-and-out movement... Different people will be there to, you know, distribute their goods and stuff. So, uh, coastal cities will be a little bit more cosmopolitan, and inland cities will be a little bit more homogenous. Cities surrounded by, or cities are surrounded by walls for defense, and when a city grows too large, a new wall is built. An old city might have as many as three walls separating districts. So, yeah. Cities are going to be, you know, major strategic points. There's going to be lots of defenses around them. So, 
like he says, large old city is going to have multiple levels of walls. I believe, actually, yes. Uh, in fact, Waterdeep is a good example of this. Waterdeep has a couple different walls at certain uh, points. And that's something that's going to be interesting about Nighthaven. So, like, you know, looking at Waterdeep here, um, you've got the field ward up here where, like, a new wall is built around. You've got the, uh, the walls here at the bottom. So, there have been multiple expansions of Waterdeep at certain points uh, that have necessitated new walls to be built. Uh, but Nighthaven, to show you my map of Nighthaven... By the way, I'm going to change this up a little bit. I'm, I'm not unhappy with this map of Nighthaven, but Nighthaven should be bigger than this. This is a very scaled-down look at Nighthaven, and I'm also going to change some of the geographical features... Because I want Nighthaven to actually be split by water. And I want more of Nighthaven to be covered by the Maw. I want the Maw basically to be this whole central area of Nighthaven. With the wealthy living on this side. And like the normal craftsmen and everything living on this side. And the riffraff kind of living in between the two of them. So that's, uh, that's Nighthaven, but, you know, I bring up Nighthaven because part of the walls of Nighthaven are actually the mountains, and that's part of what makes Nighthaven unique, is it's built into the mountains. It's kind of the last uh, inhabitable place before you get to uh, the, the mountains, which are largely impassable. So you have this kind of natural defense around the back part of Nighthaven. So only like the front area of Nighthaven from, uh, you know, coming to the north from southern Dareholm would have to have a wall. Which I think will make for an interesting concept, especially when it comes to the fact that the, uh, the wealthy live higher up and live kind of, you know, above the walls or you know they they look down upon the rest of the city they kind of look down upon the walls uh so i think that'll create some interesting circumstances anyway um let's see there may be a former formal police force or the military might fill that role to use night haven again as an example uh you've got a couple different police forces here uh, out of the Council Rotunda, you've got the Merchant's Guard. They're the main uh, police force. They're all stationed around Nighthaven Keep. You also have the Temple of Kador. They're like a... Uh, they're like... I like to think of the Temple of Kador if the Catholic Church operated the Pinkerton Detective Agency. That's kind of what the... Uh, that's what the Temple of Kador is. Oh! Hello, Bert Coin. Thank you for raiding. I need to create my own, like, raiding sprite. Because that zombie's kind of off-brand for me. But, guys, welcome. Welcome to Rollin' Bones. I'm glad that you showed up here. Uh, it is great to have all of you who just showed up. Um, 
Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you coming in. We're just talking about uh, cities in role-playing games and how they change up role-playing. And right now we're going through uh, what cities need to have. Thank you for the follow. I, I greatly appreciate it. But right now we're uh, we're taking a look at what all cities have, and this document comes to us from Professor Dungeon Master. He did a video um, about a year ago, a little, little over a year ago, about this very topic. Uh, so I'm kind of using the document, which is available to his patrons, to you know go through that. So... Uh, we were just explaining the uh, the policing of the city. So in Nighthaven, there's the uh, you know the Merchants Guard, the Temple of Cador. There's also the Night Society, um, which operate. They're kind of a joint venture between the Council and the Tower of Zalev. So their whole thing is they're the magic police and they're they're kind of a secret society of wizards and it's their job to maintain the magical order in the city of Nighthaven. So that's what all that is. And then characters will have to pay a toll upon entrance. Tolls are differentiated. Wealthy people pay more. PCs must state their names, their business, who they're staying with, and for how long? A scribe takes down the information, and if a character seems suspicious at all, authorities will shadow them. So what this gets into is the fact that adventurers, as a social class, that wasn't a, a thing in medieval society. Uh, the, the closest were like traveling mercenaries, and even they, uh, like the the best documentation of them were the Lanskinek, I think is how you say it, mercenaries in Germany in the 1400s. But for the most part, you know, travel wasn't super common in the medieval period. You mostly stayed where you lived. And if you uh, didn't, you were likely going to die of exposure. So travel was, you know, difficult and not super common. So coming up to a city, uh, people are going to be naturally suspicious of you. And I like the idea that adventuring is not a common profession uh, because that makes the players special. It makes them interesting. And it, again, is another source of conflict. There's not a lot of people out here doing this kind of thing. So... You know, how are the people going to react to these adventurers? What are they going to think of them? All that stuff. That's all important. And uh, part of that is when you come into a city, one, you're going to have to pay a toll because that's how taxes were collected. You pay a toll when the city comes in. And you have to, you know, give a reason for being there. And you have to name who you're staying with because that person's kind of responsible for your behavior. So if you uh, show up in the city and start murdering people, not only will you be hanged, but so will your host for bringing a murderer into the city. That's what that's all about. And again, Professor Dungeon Master goes into this way better than I do. This is just kind of a, a cursory overview. 
of uh, you know what he talked about. But I I find that really interesting, and uh, that's something that players will experience if they're entering Nighthaven as outsiders. They're going to have to give a name, and if it's a false name, that could create some issues, especially if someone in there knows who they really are. Uh, That could cause some turmoil. They're going to have to give a reason, and the person that they'll be there to see based on the adventure, is Kieran Devitt. Kieran is a thief-taker separate from the other authorities. He's, he's a private detective, essentially. And in the old days of policing, this is something I learned when I wrote a paper on the Pinkerton Detective Agency, when policing and, you know, crime fighting was being developed, the general thought about detectives was that they were no better than criminals. That's where the phrase, it takes a thief to catch a thief comes from. Is this old perception of law enforcement. By the way, not completely unfounded because, again, uh, police are people just like you and me. So... You know, there, there are good and bad people among them. Just because you have a badge doesn't magically make you a good person. So I, I like that there was traditionally a, uh, a skepticism of uh, policing. And that's very much present in Nighthaven because uh, Kieran is not a sanctioned authority. Kieran's a, you know, a good guy. Uh, the, these people aren't so much the the council and and the merchants guard not not especially great people uh, so they're gonna have some conflict with Kieran especially if he uh, exposes them as corrupt so you know having having a conflict from go with the authorities again is fodder for role play. And then um, wearing armor and shields is not to be permitted inside the city walls. Neither is carrying weapons. Nobles are permitted to carry swords and daggers. Stabbing someone with a sword or dagger receives the death penalty. So yeah, murder, you can't murder anyone. Um, I'd actually kind of ease up on this a little bit because from my reading and my study of uh, the medieval martial ethic, traveling... Uh, like in cities, wherever you were expected to be able to defend yourself and you were expected to be armed. And so in certain, uh, in Germany, especially in, in the German kingdoms, the Germanic kingdoms, it was expected that you would be armed, that you would have a sword or a knife. And if you didn't, you might actually be fined. And if you commit crimes with the weapon that you're permitted to carry or expected to carry, uh, your ability to carry that weapon would be taken away from you. So being disarmed would be, like, you know, a punishment. Um, But otherwise, you were expected to be armed in case you had to defend yourself or, uh, you know, defend the honor of a loved one or defend the city from attack. 
So I would say that, you know, players are allowed to carry weapons, but again, it would be something like a sword or a dagger, a sword and a dagger, uh, shields, armor, things like that would probably be frowned upon or outright illegal unless you were, say, a cleric or a paladin with some kind of religious exemption that required you to carry these things as, uh, like, you know, priestly vestments. So, again, there's there's wiggle room in here and, and ways to get around these particular uh, restrictions that you will have to roleplay in a city. So you're not just walking around armed to the teeth, uh, looking like a tank the whole time. You have to hide that or... Uh, you know, keep that for special occasions. And that's where, you know, donning and doffing armor becomes uh, a thing you have to worry about. And and the time it takes you to don and doff armor becomes a thing to worry about. I am going to include a magic item in Nighthaven that's basically the suitcase from Iron Man 2, where you uh, you have armor that's compact and you basically armor yourself quickly, uh, you know, using magic that, you know, makes things small and, and, you know, it fastens itself. It'll be expensive, but it'll be something that, uh, you know, players who want to wear heavy armor will have to seek out. In fact, I think I might uh, find some way to let Praxis character build something like that. I'll, I'll have to see what circumstances come up with, but I think he'll enjoy that kind of use of his character. I think that'll be interesting. So we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, uh, don't bother drawing out the city. Instead, toss a d12 and fill in the map below. As the players explore the city, use the notes section to add details. Uh, like calling the cathedral Our Lady of Perpetual Vengeance. So this is for, you know, quickly creating cities and quickly filling out a map so that your players have something to explore. Uh, What I am going to use this for here is just going through what's available in the city. What, What would you find in a city? So you'd be looking at, you know, Commercial districts for the docks and warehousing, uh, you know, meatpacking, slaughterhouses. In Nighthaven, one of the commercial districts would be industrial uh, because there's lots of mining. Then you'd have residential districts for the poor in tenements and, you know, taverns and homes for the working class. That's more or less what you have here in central Nighthaven is, you know, this is the, this is the residential district for the, uh, you know, the middle class of Nighthaven. And the Maw is where the tenements would be. The Maw is kind of the, the poor area. That's Waterdeep, so, you know, we'll, we'll keep that on the back burner there. And then you have the military district. Uh, So, you know, wherever the prison is, where the guards live, the barracks, uh, 
the armory, that would be the military district. And every town's going to have some iteration of this, whether it's just one guard post in a prison or, you know, a full-on garrison. Like, Nighthaven is a garrison. But there's going to be some kind of military presence there. Then you'll have the uh, mercantile corporate or commercial district. This is where the Merchants Guild Hall is, uh, where the government buildings are, that kind of stuff. You'll have recreational for, you know, gardens or public baths, because public bathing was a big thing in, in the medieval period. Commercial for, you know, theater or sports arenas. Uh, this would be, I love gladiator pits. That's another common trope of my games is a gladiator pit. So, you know, that's where something like that would come in. Um, you've got the education, magic, sector, um, which would also be a commercial district. So magic shops would be in and around a magic school. And, you know, you'd be looking at, like, a university or something like that. Then you'd have the wealthy residential district, which for Nighthaven is the High Spire. So these would be kind of like Signal Mountain in Chattanooga, if you've ever been out there. Uh, the, the rich people live up on Signal Mountain and up on uh, Lookout Mountain. So up in, up in these, you know, giant hills, you have these nice mansions on these crazy roads. And as you're driving through, like, downtown Chattanooga, you can look at the mountains and see these giant houses. Uh, Birmingham, Alabama is a lot the same way. If you go up into the mountains, or up in the hills, because there aren't really mountains, but there's, you know, kind of high hills there, you can see a lot of the, uh, a lot of the nicer houses. But then, uh, you know, the religious sector. This would be where your cathedrals, your temples, uh, you know, th this is where... Th this would be an area, a part of town where, uh, like, not a lot of violence would happen. This would be kind of a sanctuary part of town. Because uh, in general, you know, if you're, if you're committing murder in front of a church, uh, that's going to be an even bigger deal than just committing a murder for most places. And the temple is likely going to have some kind of sway over the local government. So that's something to consider. And then you have the nobility. So you've got the palace, the keep, uh, you know, just a really nice house where the mayor lives. Whatever it is, whoever runs your town, they're going to have, you know, their section of town. It might be close to the military district. Um I would certainly put it near the military district because that makes sense to me, but I mean, like, you, you can see it here. The Nighthaven Keep, the Tower of Zalev, and the Council Rotunda are pretty close to each other, all things considered. Uh, they're going to be even closer on the new map whenever I go about, you know, making that. Um, and then... You know, at some point I'm going to have someone professionally, like, actually draw a map that'll go in the book. It's just a matter of finding the right person for that. I have, I have a wish list of people for that. Um, something tells me that financially that wish list is going to remain a wish list. Maybe someday. 
Uh, but, you know, at some point there will be a professional map for this, for Nighthaven. That'll look just the way I want it to. It'll be great. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's what to expect in a city. That's, uh, you know, how Nighthaven itself works within these rules. Uh, you know, I think this is a great primer for next week as we, you know, continue in our adventures in Nighthaven. But I really wanted to talk about city-based RPGs and how they're how they're different and what, uh, you know, is substantially different about them. So, guys, that's going to do it for tonight's episode. Uh, just to let you guys know what's coming up in September, or not September, November. Next week, we're going to be doing uh, the next session of Nighthaven. Uh, the week after that, uh, as we're headed into Thanksgiving, I'm going to be doing the holiday gift guide for uh, 2021. So all the gifts that you could uh, possibly want to give the gamer in your life, we'll be talking about there. And then on November 29th, uh, my marshal from Deadlands of the Hellgate trilogy, Cheyenne Wright, will be on the show. I am looking forward to having Cheyenne on, talking all about the uh, the great work he's done with Pinnacle. Uh, you know, the, the great work he's done on Hellgate will be wrapped up by then so we can talk about, you know, how things ended and where they'll be going, uh, you know, moving forward. So it'll be a fun conversation with Cheyenne about, you know, what to look forward to as uh, things wrap up and, and move into the next season of Hellgate. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. And until then, guys, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I am so glad you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I will see you guys next time.